Welcome to Mud 79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you love Star Wars. Well, I love it too. And I've always wanted to tell my own story in a galaxy far, far away. A story that's less about Skywalkers and more about those who were on the front lines. A boots-on-the-ground story about how those living in the galaxy survive the horrors of war. That's what Mud 79 is all about. If you are new to the show, welcome, but please be aware this is a series. So if you don't want to be totally lost, start from the beginning with episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. This is episode 28, Lighting the Beacon. The 20th Company's flight team returns to the hotel and meet a new officer, Captain Andir Largo. Days later, he accompanies the 79th to secure a hilltop that's been designated as a site for an advanced piece of Imperial surveying tech, meant to penetrate deep below Sestin 4's surface and locate hidden secessionist strongholds. Will there be more to this mission than the Mudders realize? And just who is Captain Largo? Imperial intelligence? Special forces? Or something worse? Let's find out. DQ-4 has been reached. All clear. Proceeding to five. And then we moved on. We popped the first stim at hour seven, just past 0100. And it was a good thing. The next four stops were along ridge lines and uphill. That up and down, looking for solid footing and at the same time scanning anything and everything could be a threat was pretty exhausting. It was 0340 when we saw a cluster of humanoid figures at the far end of a ridgeline. I signaled the Puenda to drop and raised my rifle. These must have been collars and fresh ones too, because no one sets up on a ridge like that. Zero cover. When I zoomed in, I saw why. They weren't collars. They were Poda apes, close to a dozen. I called into the sergeant that I needed to clear them off. She gave me the okay. And Puenda and I popped a few rounds off at them, hitting the tree line above and at the dirt ahead. Just needed them to run, preferably away from us. If I had time to harvest some of their organs, I would have. Those things are worth a lot of money. But we were on the clock, so I wasn't about to just kill them for the sake of it. That's the farmer in me. A few rounds sent them tearing off. It was always a shock how loud a blaster could be when you were bathing in silence for a few hours. Well, not silence, but it was jarring just given how serene things were under the canopy. There was sound, of course. It was an orchestra under the treetops. Constant noise. Mating calls, grinding teeth, stamping feet, wings and wind rustling through the trees. 
smell shifting dramatically too. Every time the wind changed, you'd get a new scent in your nose. A sweet rot, the smell of sap, the occasional droplets of water falling from the precipitation-soaked branches above. At least you hoped it was just precipitation. Best not to think about it. We poured some DCSPs, dehydrated caloric supplement powder, into our canteens and chugged them in one long guzzle, popping a second round of stems. It was easier to keep those things down if you just did it all in one go. By now, the sky was bright enough, so we just turned off night vision thermals. 12 DQs clear, exactly two-thirds. We were making great progress. Then we crested a small hill with a half-buried boulder on it. Something moved up ahead. I caught it and dropped, rolled to the side, and peered around the brim of my cover. There wasn't anything moving, but there were a few nurse logs clustered together along the edge of a rise. It was a sniper hide, watch post. A rocky outcrop gave it ample shelter from the elements, and the angle gave it a commanding view of the terrain below, which included a clearing above a fast-moving stream. Water splashing over the stones and broken brambles of snapped trees. I signaled the Puenda and motioned her to move behind the hill and up further to my left so she could get a higher vantage point, but still remain hidden. I shifted my gaze back, saw a head pop up. They were looking down at the river below. I remained as still as possible while shifting my hand forward to the comms unit. I went as slow as I possibly could, reflecting on our field training. A fast motion will catch the eye. You need to be imperceptible, like Midnight Tar. Hefspar never explained what Midnight Tar was, but I got the intent, slow and in the shadows. I looked over at Puenda, and she was curled behind the trunk of an unya tree, gnarled gray bark. She held up three fingers and tapped her rifle. I shook my head. We were told to call in anything and everything. So that's what I did. Fired off the comms and listed the enemy position. Message received. Take cover. Birds are inbound. We held there for just over two minutes. And then I heard the lardy inbound. I was tucked in behind cover, but bits of stone were landing nearby, and it was 30 meters off. The stream of fire lasted around 10 seconds, which seems short, but when you're there, hearing the impacts of not just the heavy blasters, but the shards of stone flying everywhere and the debris rolling down the hill, it's unnerving. There was no signal from the pilots. They just stopped firing and lifted up. You are clear to proceed. Quenda and I closed in on the enemy position. Just wanted to give it a once-over 
in case there was still a threat posed to the squad. We came in at a cloverleaf, circling back and then closing in from another angle. I saw a leg. I thought it was a leg, not much of it. The whole spot was just a smoldering mess. Some of the stone still steaming and cracking, glowing red from the heat. I think they were sessions. I didn't know. They could have just been hunters, you know? I cut her off, told her it was best not to think about it. We still had a few clicks left on the march before we were off book. But I knew there was a chance she was right. There was a very real possibility they were hunters. And that hide would have been a great spot to bring down game. Clear line down to the water. But you can't let things like that get in your head. Not when you're out there, period. We reached the base of Poacher's Hill, our final checkpoint at 19 hours and 42 minutes. Quenda's numbers were a shade away from perfect. We called back to the sergeant and got the clear to head up. The peak had the broken remnants of a Duracrete structure, tumbled walls and shattered slabs that had slid down the side of the hill. No clue what used to be there, but the top of the hill was a shaved plateau. A rough oval, 25 meters across at its widest point and 15 at its slimmest. We were just beginning a sweep when Arkham came up over the opposite end. We both dropped, prepping to fire before we caught ourselves. Damn it, Kwai. I thought we'd beat you guys here. Blith was behind him, and after we exchanged a few words, updating each other on the patrol and our findings, we went to work assessing the position, full sweep, looking for booby traps, scanning for energy readouts, anything that indicated an enemy presence, or at least someone had been there recently. We were still working when Saunder and Zions, the scouts from the first squad, crested the ridge. I was expecting them to be last. Mondi was better in the bush than I was, so it was a bit concerning that she hadn't rolled in already. In fact, all three squads were already digging in and clearing rubble before she turned up, covered in mud, up to the middle of her chest. They had the unlucky card that put their route right through a few clicks of swamp and marshland. Most of it was knee-deep bog, but when you're diving for cover, well, you understand. The rest of their squad was caked in mud and sludge too. Not as badly as Sergeant Hefspar maneuvered them around the worst of it. But their scan results were uploaded along with the rest and the whole platoon got an hour of downtime. We cracked rations and exchanged stories. Third squad also called in an airstrike on what Arkham insisted 
was a malfunctioning surveillance droid. I asked for permission to take it out myself, but Mal now just denied me. Cold. No explanation, just no. Then, the lardy was there chewing the whole site to pieces. If it was drier out, the thing would have started a fire. Quenda told them about the sniper hide, but she embellished a bit, made it seem more likely they were seshers and not an unfortunate trio of hunters. It was fine. She could tell herself what she needed. I was midway through a cup of instant bean coffee when Bama and Husto came by. Anyone feeling ill effects from the stims? Tolan made a joke about his reproductive organs being too large, which Bama thought was an actual complaint, then asked some follow-up questions while Husto rolled his eyes. Just make sure if you start to feel off, you tell someone. I don't need any of you dipshits passing out and hitting your heads. After they moved on, the platoon was broken into squads and work parties. We were digging in, starting halfway up the hill. Trenches reinforced with dura-weave bagging. Standard fare, but the scale of what we were doing was pretty grand given the size of the position. We'd been sweating through the afternoon sun when a Sentinel-class lander came out of orbit touched down on the crest of the hill. We'd been sweating through the afternoon sun when a Sentinel-class lander came out of orbit, touched down on the crest of the hill. Only it was too big to actually land on the hilltop proper. So they just engaged the frontal grav lifts and parked the rear. I didn't actually see the unloading process because I was working on a trench with the rest of the mutters. But they unloaded a lot of construction gear. When my shift was done, I headed up top for inspection. Ciao. The engineering crews were grinding up the broken slabs of the ruins, reprocessing them into mix for more crete. There were teams of engineers grading the surface and laying foundation for new buildings. The sun was just starting to set. We'd only been there six hours tops, and the place was already wildly different. Loading droids were carrying off crate after crate of supplies and gear, while naval supply clerks were running over their manifests, making sure everything was accounted for and placed in the proper position and order. Those Navy assholes even brought hot food. Which they shared with us. It was great. Some type of meat. Probably garf huskers. Given they were the most common livestock in the system. Their dung was actually used for fertilizer at the vineyards in the nebula. Contributed to the unique flavor of the wine itself, I'm told. The meat tasted great, so who cared? We had fresh bread and actual vegetables, too. This was a real meal. 
Captain Largo is making the rounds, checking in with us. The platoon did good out there, Trooper. Keep it up. This is a crucial mission. Came from the Commodore himself. Spoke to near everyone, asking them about their field experience, then offering tidbits of tactics and strategy. All of it incredibly simple, obvious even, but none of it was from the manuals, at least nothing I'd read. Tech stuff, too. How to get a bit more from your blaster clip. And that was just from the few interactions I managed to catch. This guy, he was a walking encyclopedia. We just set up light stands for the engineers when we were dismissed, given leave to lay down and sleep for a few hours. They marked off a section on top of the freshly laid creek. It was already set up and deemed as good a place as any. That was it. Not even a roof over our head, just flat creek. Sergeant Kyra told us since there was no expectation of rain, we'd be fine to just lay down and get as much rest as possible. They'd be waking us up early so we could get back to work. Sleeping after a few doses of stims is like falling into a dead void. Your body really just shuts down. There's a pure black, a soft, tangible sensation of drowning in your own mind. You're present, aware you're asleep. But your brain is still moving so fast, you feel two selves at the same time. One in your mind, one in your body. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. It's an off-putting sensation. You're tearing yourself apart and the fear bolts you awake a few times before you're truly sleeping. I came to six hours later, looked around. The engineers were working away, not giving us a second of silence. There was more Crete set up on the far side of the crest, and none of the ruins were left. Everything was gone. I was shocked I'd got any sleep, given all the noise. I got to my feet, stretched, took in a deep breath, tasted generator exhaust on my tongue. There were a dozen, all whirring away, powering tools and equipment. The prefabs were up too. Central watchtower, which was being full on welded together. And beneath it was an opening in the crete and what looked to be a depression deep into the ground where I assumed the surveying gear would be going. I took a step closer when one of the engineers kindly told me to get lost. That's as close as you need to be, Trooper. Step away. He put his hand on a pistol at his side. I chuckled and raised my hand, stepping back. Didn't want to upset the button pushers. One of the prefabs they'd thrown up was to be the mess hall and the smells coming out of there were incredible. I wandered in and there were a few others already sat down and eating. The food tasted as good as it smelled. Say what you will about the Navy, they sure put on a spread. 
The sergeants had us wake up everyone who was still sleeping and get them to eat while we got back to our shovels. That first day post-stims was always the worst. The readjusting of the metabolism and the number they did on your insides. The planned trench network was fairly extensive. Three separate interlocking lines. A smart design planned for a staged retreat. This way, this way. We had our first line midway up the hill, a good 100 meters from the bottom, a near complete circle that wrapped its way around the hill. Relatively shallow, chest high for most of us, waist high for the monsters like Murray and Hefspar. We dug watch posts too, stacked bagging at strong points to hold fast and offer covering fire as we fell back. That was the interesting thing about the layout. It was intended for elastic defense, meaning you let the enemy advance, bleed them every step, and fall back to higher ground while the troops above you fed the enemy round after round. Then they'd face two more secondary trenches, weaving around the upper half of the hill before reaching the top, each with multiple watch posts that would give clear fields of view and located in spots that would make them difficult targets for the enemy unless they exposed themselves directly. The third line, the main trench, was the most well fortified. There was even creek poured over the Duraweave bagging. We dug in for that whole first week, getting constant direction from the engineers and Navy surveyors. They brought in industrial land movers to speed things up. Three days in, the scouts were given their own task. We had to work our way out past the base of the hill and enter the bush, install remote sensor arrays. These things were way more advanced than anything we got to play with before, which tracked as the Navy always had the best gear. They were remote activated and designed to flip on and off, get an instant read and then shut down after transmitting it back to our comm center, which had been built over that hole in the ground and was connected to the watchtower above which was now decorated with at least 20 communications relays. The tower itself had tiers and walkways intended for fire superiority. That's what they called it, but being on a tower like that just made you a very clear and obvious target. If you were pinning off against no-nothing cannon fodder, yeah, a heavy weapon up there would chew them up. But most of the mercs and seshers we faced knew what they were about. They would have gear specifically designed to put a tower like that out of commission. I loved the food they brought, but these rear echelon types didn't have the slightest concept of boots on the ground warfare. 
While we were out laying sensors, the engineers were planting D-charges all over the place. And pressure mines, a whole slew of defensive works. The only place where you weren't walking over explosives was the trench line. And while we were down below, the engineers had put a hardtop over the entire crest. This was when the components of the surveying gear came in. Massive crates. And from the moment they arrived, we were given strict orders to stay away from the comms building or else. Captain Largo wants me to remind you that under no circumstances are any of you to go within two meters of that building. They've got engineers marking a perimeter in red. You step on that paint, you're done. He didn't specify what done meant exactly, but he didn't need to. Aside from the cramped sleeping situation, this spot was cushier than what we had at the hotel. They had functioning showers and latrines with a link to a subterranean aquifer. They even reinforced our prefab barracks, where we slept in stacks of four. We were informed this op was scheduled for three weeks, and that was only if everything ran smoothly. They broke the news when our first resupply landed. Loads of heavy weapons and more of that premium Navy chow. I didn't mind. Three weeks was nothing, practically a vacation compared to what we normally did outside the wire. It was day 16. Living was easy. Our patrols through the woods had turned into hunting trips. The scouts were given permission to track and bring back game. Saunder was the best hunter, and it wasn't close. He was usually tame under fire, zero aggression in that guy, but his Keshian eyes gave him an edge finding tracks. And even when we saw them too, he picked up on minute details we missed. Depression, scuffs, anything to better know exactly what came by, how much it weighed, the speed it was moving, everything. The hunting, of course, came secondary. Our primary purpose was to maintain the remote sensors, which were keyed in for EM interference. They were really just proximity readers. Something with a bit of juice came by, it would know. <laughs> Kept them from sending readouts back to the comm center every time a bird or lizard flew past. Our hunting expedition turned up empty and we made our way back to the hill. I was at the top and took a look back. It was late afternoon. There was a strong breeze blowing in from the north, wrapping itself around the hill. The trees below would all sway. Not as dramatic as a grassy plain, but it was there. The hills rolling out behind them, covered in green. The mountains to the left cascading south. It really was beautiful. Then, a collection of explosions from the north. Mines. Those were mines. Mortars, close. Those were our mortars. 
The klaxon went off. We were under attack. With this much support and security, did Imperial Command expect an attack? And just who would assault a well-equipped and defended Imperial outpost? How will the 79th fare against whatever's coming their way? That's next time on Episode 29, Crude Matter. Thank you for joining me this week on Fearless Fred Presents Mud 79, a Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer very happy. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud79's cast. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at fearless underscore Fred or email me at mud79 at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi and final production is by Rob Johnson. I'll see you next week for more Mud 79.